Amen. Go and have a seat. Hey, God, we pray uh, this morning as we're together that you'd increase our joy in you, that the various things that we try to find joy in that have left us wanting and empty, that we would find in you the very um, longing of our heart. We find that longing satisfied in Christ, and we do thank you for the mystery of, at the same time, our unworthiness, but yet the worth and value that we find and knowing that we're your children, if that's all we have, we have all we need. So would you captivate us by your love for us? Would you motivate us by your love for us? As we look at forgiveness this morning, God, I pray that you would overwhelm us at the nature of what it means to be forgiven in the sight of God. And would you empower us to extend that same forgiveness in the relationships that we have on this earth? God, everything we have is yours. Anything that we would claim to be gained for us here, uh, we count as loss because of what Christ has done. And as Paul said, that we count everything to be loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so find our hearts in that place today. I pray that you'd find us receptive to your word and that you'd move through your spirit uh, during our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Matt Morehead. I'm one of the pastors here. Pleasure to be with you. You can open your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Uh, that's on page 773, I believe, in the chair Bibles, if you don't have your own. If you need a Bible, please take that with you. We'd love for you to have that as a gift from us. Just real quickly, before we uh, march forward in our time of the words, we have th our three newest human beings in the room. Outside of Sergio and Mandy Matusa's baby boy, I want to read their names just because I can't remember my own kids' names, much less everybody else. So Jay Swindell is not here. He's currently out of the, out of the, the, the room. Yeah, give it up. Beck, Beck McGee. Beck McGee's back here. And then Barrett, Barrett Johnson. Barrett gets the vote. She gets the vote for the newest. The newest is a week-ish. Uh, actually, last Sunday, right? Yeah. But so good, to, uh, so good to celebrate new life, and we're grateful that God is the giver of life. And, um, you know, as, as a preacher, uh, it's very rare that you can feel like a particular message might be the most important message that you can preach. And, and I feel that this morning. I feel like of all the ways in which the sermons over the years, however many hundreds or thousands I might be able to preach by God's grace over the course of my life, um, I think this topic, not necessarily this particular message, but this topic might be among the most important messages I could ever preach. Because forgiveness is so pervasive in its effect, or the lack of forgiveness is so pervasive in its effect in our lives, like it impacts our very relationship with God. It impacts us internally in ways that we probably don't fully recognize when we either forgive or choose not to forgive, and it certainly impacts every relationship that we have that's meaningful, and particularly those relationships where we're challenged even day by day, certainly weekly and monthly, to forgive those who are closest to us. And if I ask you to write down, and you may even do this, maybe the ways in which God's calling you to forgive even things from this last week, I'm certain that all of us could come up with certain moments where we've been challenged with unforgiveness in our hearts. It could be as simple as not being included as a group of your friends get together and they didn't invite you. 
could be as significant as looking all the way back into your childhood and considering abuse that was done to you. But from the simple to the profound, all of them meet in the this center that we call forgiveness, like biblical forgiveness. And there's so much that could be said here. This, is, this could certainly be a series unto itself. Um, I have a lot to say that God's put on my heart. I want to just kind of move right into it. The main idea that I want to give you this morning is that kingdom people are forgiven people, and kingdom people are forgiving people. So last week we started a, a series called uh, Kingdom Relationships. And so we tried last week to kind of orient us around this idea called kingdom from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And the essence of that is where we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules and he reigns. And so kingdom people are those people that are under his rule and his reign. And there's ways in which like the, the presence of God within us is demonstrated outwardly to, to bear the marks of the king having come into our lives. And this is one of them, the ability to forgive, the ability to apply biblical forgiveness in the context of human relationships. The main idea is kingdom people, if you're a Christian in this room, that's you, you are a forgiven person, and as a kingdom person, you are called to, to be forgiving. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18. It's one of many places that we could look. Uh, we're going to be looking at conflict resolution next week, which will, some of this will bleed into next week a little bit. But we're going to read the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. You'll probably see that header in most of your Bibles. <clears throat> so let's read. We're going to read the entire parable, and then we'll go back and kind of bite off some chunks of it. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. This is God's word for us. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, there's the picture, here's what the kingdom is like. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Note how familiar the language is from the previous plea. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And the servant refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you 
if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Kingdom people are forgiven people, and kingdom people are forgiving people. So firstly, kingdom people are forgiven people. The kingdom of heaven might be compared to this king who wished to settle accounts. He had a particular servant who owed 10,000 talents. So kingdom people live in light of this debt that's been forgiven, that was owed to the king. That's kind of the picture of this initial part of this parable. But let me just frame this in, because I think we can lose the significance of this because we don't use measurements like talents and denarii and minas and things like that. But let me just put it in a, a rough framework for today's money, just to give you a little bit of the scope of this illustration that Jesus is giving. So 10,000 talents of debt. So just frame this in. One talent is equal to 20 years of wages for a laborer. A lot of you see that in your Bible. So one talent is equal to 20 years worth of wages. So if you put this into average household dollars in America today, average household income is $70,000 for the year, just across the board in the U.S. So we'll use that as a marker to kind of orient us around today's money. So average household income, $70,000 a household. So one talent using that measure, 20 years times 70000 is $1.4 million. That's one talent, $1.4 million. And if you're quick at math, what that means is 10,000 talents would be equal to $14 billion in today's money. $14 billion. So if you can just kind of let that sink in for a moment. Most of us probably have some measure of debt. Imagine yourself having $14 billion worth of debt and just how significantly weighty that would feel. It's no wonder that the next word is having no way to pay. There's no way a laborer could pay $14 billion. There's no way that you and I could just pony up $14 billion. And since he could not pay, verse 25... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So this servant owed a debt he couldn't afford, but payment had to be made. So the only payment he could make was with his very life. Does that sound familiar? Like the mountain of our wrong choices stands against us as individual human beings. Before God, we've broken God's law. And so this mountain, this heap of wrongdoings stands against us as it were, as we stand in the presence of God, testifying against us that we have broken the law of God. The moral debt we owe God is so massive, the only way that you and I can pay it is with our very own lives. And that's the picture of hell. So the only way that we can pay our debt is to atone for it ourselves eternally. And that's the picture that Jesus is drawing from this Illustration, Romans 3.23 and 6.23, if you take the negative parts of those verses, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is all of us. The playing field is level, and the wages of that particular sin, our life of sin, is death. So in light of that weight, death that can't be paid, the servant falls on his knees, he implores, he, the, the word is literally worship in most places in the New Testament, he worships the king, and pleads for mercy. Out of sheer desperation, the servant falls, implores, he prostrates himself, he begs for patience, and even makes a promise he can't make good upon. I'll pay you everything that I owe. And the posture is repentance and worship, but note, 
Like the, the, the void promise of the servant is not even necessary because of the, the pardon of the king. He doesn't have to pay it because the king forgave it, released him from it by no doing of his own other than just his sheer brokenness and desperation before the king. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And like this servant making the long walk, if you can imagine that servant walking to meet the king, knowing he's, have to, he's gonna have to settle accounts with nothing to make good on his debt, you and I are walking through this life on the way to meet the king. And we carry with us a record of debts that we can't afford to pay. So our call is the same. Fall on our knees. Worship God. Throw yourself upon his mercy. Implore him to forgive you, a sinner. And by the amazing work of God, he'll forgive you. And you'll be clean and be pardoned in Christ. We have redemption and forgiveness. We saw that last week in Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this, says you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, that record of debt, he set aside nailing it to the cross. There is no amount of work or type of work you and I can accomplish to be forgiven. Our debt is truly insurmountable. And if you feel that way today, or if you felt it in the past, and you've hurled yourself on the mercy of God as seen in Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. If you have not, you can be forgiven. But it takes repentance. It takes brokenness and desperation to to believe that you need the very thing that God has provided you and you can never provide for yourself. Run to Christ this morning. You cannot cancel your record of debts. Only the cross of Christ can do that. But the gospel of Jesus for the people of God, for kingdom people, assures us that Jesus moved our mountain of wrongdoing and set aside our record of law-breaking and he's made us new. He's given us pardon and freedom to walk in newness of life. So every wrong choice, every evil word spoken, every sinful act committed or good work omitted has been set aside, having been nailed to the cross. Praise God for his matchless grace. If you know him this morning. Kingdom people are forgiven people. And now we go on to the second part of it because note the parable is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Kingdom people are forgiving people. Verse 28, when that same servant goes out, he finds another servant who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So a hundred denarii. So the forgiven servant was owed by this other servant one single day's wage. That's a hundred denarii. So using our previous math, if you break down 70,000 a year, you divide it by 261 days. I took out the weekends. We'll just assume this guy doesn't work on the weekends. The daily wage is $268. So just frame this in for a moment. The servant has been forgiven $14 billion. And he finds his fellow servant and chokes him out for $268. 
That's, that's the picture that Jesus is providing. And if we don't settle into current dollars in our frame of reference, I don't think we quite feel the weight. $268. And I couldn't help, as I, was, as I was praying and preparing this week, the, you know the picture that came to mind is if you can imagine yourself being this servant, he finds his other servant. If you can picture yourself grabbing this servant by the throat, holding him up in the air, it's like the sky above. It's like this whole envelope, the expanse of the heavens is like the grace of God witnessing what's happening below. Everything around him, as he chokes out his fellow servant, reminds him of grace, but yet he's forgotten. He just wants his $268. Pay me what I owe. Pay me what you owe me. And Jesus says, not so with kingdom people. It goes on, the story says, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And the irony of the similarity in the exchange is he says, have patience with me, I'll pay you. But yet the forgiven servant refuses. The same mercy he pleaded for and received from the king, he withholds from the one who owed him. Choking out another servant with the endless expanse of God's grace in view. Verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, Although we have to note there's like a godly version of tattletaling that happens here that we have to just kind of make note of. I don't know exactly the application here if there is one for the people of God, but note that the other servants make note of the incongruence between knowing this servant had been forgiven and is going now to exact $268, as it were, from his fellow servant. And they're incensed at the notion. It's like, how can this be? You've been forgiven $14 billion and you're going over here choking my man for $268? Just should not be the case. Then his master responds. His master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In the time I have left, I want to unpack just some practical pieces of this. You know, first, what we see in that last section I just read is you have had mercy shown to you, so you should show mercy. Pass it on. So I don't know how many of you remember commercials from the 80s. Pass it on is a familiar moniker for the milk, it does a body good. Remember those commercials? It says, milk, it does a body good. Now pass it on. Don't just enjoy it yourself. Don't just be strengthened by it, but tell somebody about it. That's the whole essence of the commercial. And the same is true of forgiveness. Like if you received it, like you benefited from it, you're enjoying it as it were, how could you do anything less than pass it on? So forgiveness isn't just merely something to be received by the Christian. It's something to be replicated by the Christian. Like something that's done, been done to us then moves outward through us to our human relationships as an expression of the fact that we belong to God. It's like clothing that we put on as we walk with Jesus. The Colossians 3 Verses 9, 10, 12, and 13, it says, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You might say it this way, forgiveness is love in work clothes, because it takes work to forgive and if love doesn't keep an account of wrongs, then you could say that forgiveness is truly love working itself out. And it's only in the light of what we've been forgiven that we'll be able to consistently and biblically forgive others. And family, like this is not just some principle to kind of put in a notebook somewhere. Like this is daily life. Like, like this afternoon, likely, it's, I mean, I would wager my life a number of us this afternoon will be offended somehow, will be wronged somehow, or we'll, we'll think about some wrong in the past somehow, and we'll have to put in view the grace that we have been shown, the forgiveness that we have been given in Jesus to rightly move toward others with forgiveness. This is daily life. And if you miss this, every single corner of your life will be impacted. Every single relationship you have will be hindered and damaged if we don't get this part right. It's only in light of what we've been forgiven that we'll be able to consistently and biblically forgive others. Forgiveness is love and work clothes. Forgiveness is, is more than a feeling. It's an act of obedience. The very beginning of this parable, Peter comes up. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And we can count the number of wrongs. We're guilty of that. That's like the fifth time. I swear my kid has done that. I know you just did that yesterday. You're thinking of your spouse or your roommate. And like you can keep very quickly a record of wrongs. You might even go so far as to try to count to 77 and be like, all right, I'm tapped out. Jesus said seven, seven. And you are there. You're 78. No mas. But that's not the picture. I mean, the picture is you've, you forgive. We talked about this last week. Like You forgive in upside-down ways to the world. Because the world's going to say, well, don't let them do that to you again. Are you foolish? You can't let them get away with that. No, the implication is unforgiveness is your way to not let them get away with that. That is from the pit of hell. That is not a biblical framework. And forgiveness involves releasing someone from the dead, but it also involves stepping into our identity as kingdom people. You forgive 77 plus. You keep forgiving. Kingdom people are upside down people, and your forgiveness is upside down to the earth. That's why Jesus, seemingly the only part of his prayer that he recommends is a pattern for prayer and a pattern for our life in Matthew chapter 6, the only section that he elaborates on is on forgiveness. Let me read from Matthew 6, verses 12 through 15. It says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For, this is the only commentary he gives, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. Now, this is really substantial language. 
Jesus adds emphasis and additional commentary on forgiveness in the midst of this prayer. And essentially he's saying this, you should pray this way, God, treat me as I treat other people. He's not saying right here that you should forgive the way you've been forgiven. He's saying pray to God that he would treat you the way you treat other people. Whoa. What would, what would our lives look like if God treated us the way we treat other people in the realm of forgiveness? That's tough. And I think we need to, we need to feel the gravity of that. Because kingdom people pray this way. Like, forgiveness is so central to my identity as a follower of Jesus. Like, it's an evidence. It's high up on the list. I'm not going to say it's the most important evidence, but it's really high on the list as to whether or not you belong to Jesus. Because if you've been forgiven, the implication is you know the, what forgiveness feels like and looks like. So give it away. How could you withhold from others the very thing that you've received by no merit of your own from the God of the universe? May it never be of the people of God. But are we daring enough to pray that way? Kevin DeYoung, his book on the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgiven people forgive. It's as simple as that. If you never forgive, you ought to wonder if you've ever truly experienced and really believed in forgiveness. Let me say this as a quick P.S., because there are undoubtedly some people in this room that have had significant pain and significant abuse done to them. And I want you to know that I'm, I'm as sorry as I can be as a pastor, as a brother, as an individual. I don't know your pain. And this, is, this call to forgive is not to minimize the level of the pain that you've experienced. It's not diminishing the wrong done. In fact, when you frame in forgiveness biblically, it really has nothing to do with the ultimate consequences of the wrong. There's still consequences to sin. There's still consequences for the offender. But ultimately, we can convince ourselves that somehow part of the consequences is our unforgiveness of the wrongdoer. That somehow that is part of the equation to to leverage them and to provide a sense of retribution or retaliation, but the Lord has forgiven us completely. He's released us from the moral debt that we owe. The clear calling in Scripture is having been released from our debt, we are called to release our debtors, no longer seeing them through the lens of their sin. Just hear me on this once again. Your choice to not forgive is not a form of discipline on the offender. The only consequence it will bring will be in your life. It'll eat you alive from the inside out. And it will have no benefit in that relationship that you seek to hold on to it as leverage. It just simply doesn't work that way. And forgiveness doesn't mean restoring trust, and it doesn't even necessarily mean forgetting. It means releasing that person from the debt that they owe you morally so that you can be free to not see them through the lens of their sin. As it relates to trust, author Dan Allender said this, says, forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt. And that's really what we're talking about today. Forgiveness involves a heart, an individual who cancels the debt owed from someone to me. I cancel that debt at a heart level between me and God. But it doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. 
It doesn't even mean that trust is restored. Because Dan Allender goes on to say this, forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt but does not lend new money until repentance occurs. And that's an important part of the equation. We'll talk more about that next week with conflict resolution. But forgiveness is releasing the offender from the moral debt owed to you and no longer holding it against them. There's this quote I'll read to you from Time Magazine years ago. It's in a discipleship material that we've used over the years called Call to Obedience. And I love what it captures, and I'll read it. We'll have it up here. It says, Not to forgive is to be imprisoned by the past, by old grievances that do not permit life to proceed with new business. Not to forgive is to yield oneself to another's control. If one does not forgive, then one is controlled by the other's initiatives and is locked into a sequence of act and response of outrage and revenge, tit for tat, escalating always. The present is endlessly overwhelmed and devoured by the past. Forgiveness frees the forgiver. It extracts the forgiver from someone else's nightmare. Some of you need to be pulled out of someone else's nightmare. Quite honestly, you need to be pulled out of your own nightmare because you've been holding on to unforgiveness for way too long. And if you need help with that, sometimes over long periods of time where there's a lack of forgiveness and unhealthy patterns exist, whether it be in a marriage or in relationships past with your family or just in general, you might need help walking through that process. And I want you to know as pastors, we would love to come alongside you. Counselors can really help as it relates to really deep traumatic pain. But don't let unforgiveness reside in your heart if you're a believer. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy your relationships. It'll rob you of joy and peace and stability. It'll rob your witness in this world. Get help to walk through that process. And don't be satisfied just letting it abide in your life. And the painful irony of unforgiveness is that it gives you the illusion of control while shackling you to your offender and their actions. You and I become ruled by the very leverage that we think we possess. And knowing the truth about forgiveness is one of the many ways, biblically, that the truth will set you free. Understanding biblically what forgiveness is is one of the many ways that the truth of God will set you free. Let me just share a couple brief thoughts as we finish off. Maybe the question becomes, like, who am I called to forgive? Who am I called to forgive? And this text and many others, there's a, there's a brother to brother, a brother to sister relationship, which implies this is in the family of faith. But before you give yourself a pass on forgiving everyone, those who aren't Christians or outside the church, let me just read this from Mark eleven twenty five. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Anything against anyone that hits most corners of our life, I think. I don't even need to do original language work on that one. Anything against anyone. If you find yourself holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness against anyone for anything, you need to pray and forgive. If anyone has wronged you, even if they don't come to you and ask your forgiveness, you're still called to forgive. And that's a different paradigm for a lot of us. 
A lot of us expect that forgiveness should be granted when the person comes to make it right. And biblically, the pattern that I see, you see it here in other places, that forgiveness is firstly an act between you and God before it's anything moving toward reconciliation. Because reconciliation requires both people. It requires repentance from the other person. But forgiveness is first a matter of the heart between you and God. Whatever moment you realize you have anything against anyone, you're called to forgive them. Maybe the prayer would look something like this. God, in light of the debt you have forgiven me, I choose to forgive this person for this action or inaction. I pray for your supernatural help to continue to walk in this commitment to forgive and to not hold their sin against them or treat them according to the offense or retaliate against them for it. Please understand this. Forgiveness is so much more than therapeutic. Like it's intensely theological. Because it's all bound up in the power of God working in his people to demonstrate that the kingdom is real, that Jesus is real. He makes a difference. And so for this kind of forgiveness, this supernatural work of God is intensely theological business. God wants to make a name for himself through you. And this is part of him doing that. It's showing that by his grace and by his power, you can forgive in ways that the world just doesn't understand. And they simply cannot do. Or manufacture in their own strength. And one of the things we see, this is the last reference I'll share with you, Luke 17, 3 through 6. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We'll walk through that a little bit more next week. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I love this reaction. It's like, Lord, are you serious with this right now? Give us faith. Like, give us faith to do Something like this, it doesn't make any sense to us. Give us faith in you to give us the power that we don't possess to forgive this way. That's their reaction. It's like, who can, it's like, who can do such things? Who can forgive in such ways? Kingdom people. Kingdom people filled with the power of the king. Forgiven. An unimaginable mountain of debt by the king. And we not only have the calling to forgive, but God's grace gives us the capacity to forgive. That's the wonderful part. He's not just calling us to do something, but leaving us void of power to obey him. The joy of the Christian life and obedience is that the thing that God calls you to, he'll give you the power to obey. Isn't that good news? The things that seem impossible, the, the corners of your life right now that seem impossible to be touched by this truth, you cannot do it. You're too weak. You don't have enough faith. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Increase my faith. Be powerful on my behalf. God loves and delights answering prayers of those who are weak, that he might be mighty for us. Forgiveness is an act of God, and we need, to, need God to increase our faith to forgive and I think we know well, many of us, that forgiveness is costly. It's hard work. But when you feel that twinge of pain around these edges of forgiveness and the things that God is calling you to forgive, I want you just to, to try to envision hearing the voice 
of Jesus as he endured the pain of the cross. As he saw everybody involved in putting him up on the cross. As he, as he was there with stakes driven through his wrists and through his feet. His own body weight causing him to suffocate. As he, as he resisted, as it were, the call of angels to come and make everything right. So he could make them, in the midst of that cost and that pain, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Everything that we can do in the realm of forgiveness has to be in light of the cross of Jesus. All the power that we need to forgive other people is bound up in the finished work of Jesus. So where you feel incapable of forgiving, put him back in view. Make the grace of God big in your eyes that your sin would become bigger other people's sin will become smaller, that the grace of God would be extended through us to other people, that they would see the kingdom of God at work within us. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray for that. Oh, Lord. We are, God, we are weak and frail. And we have a hard time, God, even evaluating our own hearts. We're so easily deceived into justifying things that are truly sin as maybe just reasonable things to make relationships better or to keep a sense of control. And so, God, I pray that we'd see in this realm of forgiveness and unforgiveness that we'd see things rightly, that we'd see relationships rightly, and I, th I pray more than anything that your grace would become large in our eyes. Just as we, in a moment in time, can be challenged by the picture of $14 billion versus $268, I pray there'd be something of that picture that would drive itself really deep into our hearts. That whether it be today or tomorrow or the days and months, in years to come in our lives, that we would always have in full view the, the full weight of what we've been forgiven that we might be able to forgive, even in the deepest and darkest places of our experience. Would you help us, God, I pray. Reveal your presence in us, your kingdom alive in us, that we'd forgive as you have forgiven and that you would forgive us the way we forgive other people, that we so prove to be your disciples and your people. Would you heal where there's brokenness this morning through steps that are going to be taken to move toward forgiveness by your grace? You are good. You are great and greatly to be praised. You haven't dealt with us according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity. But as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sin from us. And we rejoice in that this morning. We love you. We thank you. And we need you as we seek to spread forgiveness in our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go and stand together. We'll sing.